And today's scripture comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4, verses 14 through 22. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son? they asked. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So here's a question for you, especially if you're a parent. Here's the question. Which one of your kids do you like the most? Okay, now, if, if you're a kid, don't, like, punch your parent and say, tell us which one. I, if I ask you that question in real life, and you're a parent, you might be mildly offended, right? You might immediately say, what are you talking about? I love my kids all, completely. And I hope that's true. But was I, as I study the Gospels, the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, sometimes I think to myself, which one's my favorite? As a matter of fact, I have to admit, on occasion, my favorite is whichever one I'm reading, right? Like, oh, this is great. I like the way he's doing this and saying this. But when I step back from it, I realize that I love them all. And one of the reasons I love them all is because they're so different. Just like my kids. They're just so different. And at the same time, they're exactly the same. So my two children, a boy and a girl, of course, that makes them a lot different, but a boy and a girl, they are absolutely different in terms of their personalities, but they're exactly the same. I mean, genetically. They're from my genes and my wife's genes. They, they came from us. There's a oneness to them, but there's a distinct difference. The Gospels are a lot like that. They have one message, one word, Jesus. That's the focus of the Gospels. They're different in the way they tell that story about Jesus, why we have called this series perspectives. I don't know if you uh, know a lot about stained glass windows. We don't have any here. Sometimes I kind of wish we did. Other times I just like the light the way it is. But the last church I pastored, it had no clear windows in it at all. It was stained glass all the way around, front, back, side. It was gorgeous stained glass. It was uh, built, put in when the church was built in 1904, so you can see 
how old that stained glass was. It was majestic, and what we know of stained glass is that it tells the story of the Bible routinely. Some churches more than others have this as a part of their narrative. It tells the story of the Bible with pictures. And when you look, especially across Europe at the cathedrals of Europe, what you will notice is that routinely the four gospels are characterized with one image. And the image is often an animal. So you might wonder, what about the image of Matthew? The image most frequently associated with Matthew is a lion. The lion of the tribe of Judah. Remember, he's writing to a pretty much exclusively Jewish audience. And he's highlighting the importance of understanding Jesus as Messiah, King of the Jews. When it comes to Mark, frequently the image is a human being, a man. Why? Because Mark seems to emphasize more than others the humanness of Jesus. We talked about that last week. And the blend between this theme, son of God and son of man, it's very human. When it comes to Luke, what do you suppose the image is? Maybe some of you know your stained glass history well enough to know what that is. It's actually a lot of times a calf. Why? Apparently because a calf is routinely viewed as a sacrificial animal. And in Luke's gospel, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ is highlighted But in a distinct way, he is the redeemer of the whole world. That's very distinct in Luke's gospel. So, who wrote Luke's gospel? I think it was actually Luke. He was also the author of the Acts of the Apostles. And sometimes scholars talk about it as one unit. Luke Acts, probably writing no doubt, writing Luke first, the gospel, and then following that very shortly, wrote the book of Acts. He was a companion to Paul on his journeys, so he knew that well. Unfortunately, we don't have an exact date for the writing of Luke. You know, back then, at the front of the parchment, you didn't have a copyright date, right? You have to figure out what it is. Um, Our best, most conservative estimate is that it was somewhere in the mid-60s to late-60s. Certainly, I believe, before 70 AD, in my opinion. It probably came after the book of Mark. The book of Mark might have been one of the standard uh, descriptions of the life of Jesus as was used by Luke and um, other books that he used to describe this gospel. One thing that's interesting about Luke is that he says right up front what he's doing. He says, I'm giving you an orderly account based on everything I've heard and I know. He, he starts out by basically saying, I'm a historian, and here's how I want to lay it out for you. What we also know about Luke is that he was a physician. And you see physician language, first century physician language coming through in his writing. 
So apart from Luke himself and the date, the authorship, what are the major characteristics of this gospel? Three things I want to emphasize, and there could be more. But the first is, Luke is a gospel for the whole world. More than any of the other gospels. As a matter of fact, Luke is a Gentile. The only Gentile that wrote a gospel. Luke is also a non-apostle. That is, the only person who wrote a gospel who was not an eyewitness. That marks him off as different from the start. You'll also notice that he opens the book by addressing it to an individual, Theophilus. We don't know a lot about Theophilus, but he calls him most excellent Theophilus. That reference in literature routinely refers to a person who is high-ranking as an official in the Roman Empire. So it's clear that Theophilus is probably a high-ranking official in the Roman Empire, a Gentile, and Luke is saying, I want you, Theophilus, to know this is true. And I'm writing this account for you. What's also characteristic of Luke, that is that it is a gospel for the whole world. When we think of the whole world in New Testament Judaism, we're talking about everything except Jewish, right? That's the way they thought. We're the Jews, and then the whole world is Gentiles. So Luke is writing to the whole world as a Gentile. Some interesting things about that that you'll notice if you study Luke very long. Whereas the Gospel of Matthew and the other Gospels will routinely refer to Jesus as rabbi, Luke never does. He uses the word master or teacher. It's a Gentile phrase. As if those people in the whole world need to hear the gospel with different words. As a matter of fact, on many occasions, Luke uses a Hebrew word and translates it specifically into Greek or Aramaic for his listener or reader. It's interesting how Luke writes. It's so clear he's writing for a Greek audience. But more importantly, Luke describes Jesus as the savior of the world. The gospel of Luke is kind of like a prelude to the acts of the apostles. This is for everyone. Second characteristic of Luke that is very interesting In Luke, we find a gospel for the disenfranchised more than any other gospel. Who were the disenfranchised? Well, you might be surprised to know, or maybe not. There were women. Routinely, women were the disenfranchised minority in any society, just based on their gender. What's so fascinating about this, when you hear the birth narratives told by Luke, they're told from the perspective of women, Elizabeth and Mary, and even the prophetess Anna. 
If you flip back to the Gospel of Matthew, you know how the announcement concerning Jesus' birth is described? Through the eyes and experience of Joseph, the father, not Mary. It's also true that Jesus was routinely supported by women financially in order to be able to continue his ministry. We see a reference to that in Luke's Gospel, chapter 8, where the names, the description of the 12 apostles are there. And then, then at the end of it, it says, and these women. And he lists some women, at least one of which I'm sure you've never heard of. And the tagline for listing those women is this. These women supported him from their own means. They made it happen. There's something else that's interesting about the gospel of Luke as it relates to women. You hear a description of Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus when when he's teaching. You might say to yourself, well, that's good. She was listening to Jesus. No, if we just see it that way, we're missing something. There were only certain people who sat at the feet of their master or rabbi. And that was the disciples of that master or rabbi. That's how the rabbi taught. They at his feet and him teaching to them. And in this description, who's on the floor, up close and personal, listening to Jesus' teachings? Mary. Why is that significant? Women couldn't be in that context in the first century. A woman would not be allowed to be at the feet of a rabbi listening to her. If she learned anything, it would be from her husband. Never straight from the teacher. And Jesus has Mary at his feet. And Luke, unlike the other gospels, records it. So there's the characteristic of the gospel for the whole world. There's the characteristic of the gospel for the disenfranchised. And one of the disenfranchised minorities are women. But there's a lot of other disenfranchised minorities. And they emerge in Luke's gospel in a way that none of the rest do. Luke seems to tell the story of Jesus and the poor and his concern for the poor more than the other gospels do. Luke already also describes Jesus as a friend of sinners and outcasts, tax collectors, when nobody else was. And I guess you might know this. I'm sure you'll know it now when I ask the question. You know where the story of the prodigal son is? In Luke. Luke tells the story of a prodigal son who rejects his father, walks away from his life with his family, lives, as the King James said, a riotous kind of life, and finds himself in a cesspool with pigs. There's only one place 
You're going to help out a pig farmer. It's among Gentiles. This guy, according to Jewish standards, had fallen to the lowest possible level. Talk about an outcast. A guy feeding pigs and actually wishing maybe he could have a bite of their food. And what happens to that outcast? He comes back a repentant son and his father embraces him. It's a description about how Jesus loves deeply every human being. So characteristic of Luke. Something else about the outcast that Luke makes clear. The rich and the mighty, according to Luke, will be humbled. And those who are humble will be exalted. He turns the tables. So we have the uniqueness of the gospel of Luke as being the gospel for the whole world. We got the uniqueness of the gospel of Luke being an emphasis on the disenfranchised. In the third element of Luke's gospel that is unique. And when I say unique, I don't mean that nobody talked about the poor or women or disenfranchised minorities, but it's the emphasis that Luke gives. So the third characteristic of Luke I find this fascinating, never saw it before until I read it this week. The words, praise God or praising God, appear more in the gospel of Luke than in the entire New Testament. That's amazing. So the third characteristic of the gospel of Luke is prayer and praise. Praise is paramount for the disciple. Prayer is paramount for the disciple. As a matter of fact, at the baptism of Jesus, when the Holy Spirit descends upon him like a dove and the heavens part and a voice comes from heaven, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, listen to him. You know what, according to Luke, Jesus was doing before the announcement was made? He was praying. None of the other gospels recorded that way. The night before he chose his 12 disciples, he spent the night in prayer. At the Mount of Transfiguration, he was praying. Of course, on the cross, he also prayed. And he prayed, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And get this, only in Luke's gospel, when Peter faces his worst temptation, which leads to the betrayal of Jesus, Jesus says to him, according to Luke, Peter, Satan wants to sift you like wheat. In other words, he wants to destroy your soul. But Peter, I have prayed for you. No other gospel records it quite like that. And when you are restored, Jesus sees the timeline and is declaring it to Jesus. You're going, is declaring it to Peter. When you betray me, then you're going to be restored. And when you're restored, I want you to encourage the brothers. 
I want you, Peter, because I have prayed for you to encourage the brothers and sisters who, like you, someday may fall away and feel absolutely unworthy of my grace. I want you to return to them, encourage them. I want you to let that story be known, Peter, so people understand my love. I prayed for you. It's also interesting that prayer as insistent, passionate, not giving up is described in Luke's gospel rather than more than any of the others. Remember the story of the person who came to his friend at night and pounded on the door and said, I don't have any bread for my visitors. And the person inside who was his friend said, but I'm asleep with my family. You expect me to get up basically and walk all over the mats to get to the door to give you some bread? But because the friend on the outside was persistent, wouldn't stop knocking, the friend on the inside gave him bread. Or remember the story of the unjust judge that was hassled by a widow Jesus said, you know why the unjust judge who really didn't care for God at all or justice gave her her wish? Because she wouldn't shut up. She just kept pleading. Jesus wraps all of that up in the context of prayer and Luke alone reports it. So he emphasizes the importance of prayer and praising. So what does all this mean for us? Well, first, at the heart of the Christian faith is missions. You can't, says Jesus, take this light and hide it under a bushel. You gotta shine it to the whole world. Remember that little song when you were a kid? This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. That's the idea. Can't keep the good news to yourself. So Luke, again, is the prelude to the Acts of the Apostles, where the mission of the church is to share the good news to everybody. Not to condemn the world, but to save the world. Or the good news, as Jesus reminded Nicodemus, is that I did not come to condemn the world, but to save the world. And to put it in a paraphrase, the world already knows it's in a mess. The world already understands its condemnation. You don't have to say that. Tell them about the good news. At the heart of the mission of this church has always been missions. From the very start. From 1976, when this church was founded, missions was central to its mission. So I want to just pause for you who are here and for you who are listening online to say thank you. I want to say thank you for supporting missions because it's the heart of the gospel. We give to missions in order to allow people to do things that we cannot We support missionaries all over the world so that the good news can be shared. It's part of our mission. Thank you for supporting it. 
If you never have, think about it. This gospel takes on a, an interesting mission when it says that the good news is for the whole world. And you know what we routinely find out? It's when we step into that mission and share it with the whole world, the ones who were the teachers become the ones who are taught. I can't tell you how many times that realization has dawned on me as I've traveled overseas with our missionaries that different cultures, because it's a different culture, understand another layer of the good news that I was blind to. And when released to those people, many of whom have never heard that good news, all of a sudden the gospel explodes. It becomes like a kaleidoscope of grace. It shows colors I never imagined. And I'm humbled. And those people are educating me. I love that about missions. What other application for us? The church has always, always, always got to be about ministry to the disenfranchised. It was that way from the beginning. And if we don't make it part of our ministry, we lose part of our soul. You know when the church was the most powerless? Or let me say it a different way. You know when the church is the most powerless? It's when it curries favor from the rich and the influential. When it spends all its time trying to become important in society. When it spends all its time cozying up to people who have power, then it is the most powerless. When is it the most powerful? When it stops thinking about itself and starts thinking about others. When is it the most powerful? When it's reaching out to those who are disenfranchised. When is it the most powerful? When it reaches out to the poor, the needy, the oppressed, the marginalized. That's when the church is most powerful. And we should never forget it. The third thing is that we ought to be, as a church, all about prayer and praise. Those two elements, prayer and praise, are essential to our understanding of God and the Scripture itself. I don't need to tell you because you probably tire of hearing me say it, but we live in a place, Bloomington, Indiana, where we think we can figure everything out right here. If we just study hard enough and get enough degrees and write better and think better, finally we'll really understand God. Poppycott. No, no, no. Yes, study's important, but to understand God is to bow down to God. It is to understand God through prayer. It's to understand God through praise. At the beginning of our worship service, we always begin with music, right? 
Adam and the band sang some wonderful praise music. Three songs. Brian sang for us another classic piece of hymnody. And sometimes we kind of think of it as a warm-up for the real act. A prelude to the important stuff. I don't mean to denigrate preludes. I like preludes and books. They really set things up well. But what I want to say is that music, praise, prayer, is more than just a prelude. It's actually a gateway, a pathway for understanding. It is in prayer and praise that the portals of our mind and our heart are opened. You know, from a physical perspective, a person can look like the specimen of health and be athletic and strong. And if one little thing starts to go wrong, like blood not flowing through the arteries, you know what happens. I got a cardiologist who goes to the church here, Dr. Jim Fix. Recently, I went to see him, and he said, yeah, Bob, it's probably time for Crestor. I take Crestor. Why? To make sure the blood's flowing. If you've got a powerful vehicle, no matter how powerful it is, if it starts heating up on you, there might be nothing wrong with that engine. The only thing that's wrong with it is right in front of the engine. It's called a radiator that circulates water in a cooled engine. And if that radiator is plugged up, if that conduit, like an artery or a radiator, is clogged, it won't work. You might as well just turn it off. It's worthless. My point is this. Prayer and praise are the conduits to our deep understanding of God. We can't just study God. We must praise God. We must pray to God. There's nothing that will take us higher than that. You may notice that in the book of Acts, which we eventually will get to, um, I haven't said this in the second service. I didn't want to show my hand. But... We started a series, second week of January, in the Gospels. And this series is going to be a march through the New Testament, and it won't end until the first Sunday of Advent in 2021. That's where we're going. Sometimes it'll just be one book. Other times it'll be three or four Sundays on one book. But we're going to march right up to the book of Revelation and stop because we already did that. I really look forward to it, but when we get to the book of Acts, you'll notice how many times when the disciples were gathered in prayer that the Holy Spirit was poured out upon them. When they were on their way to the place of prayer, incredible healing miracles took place. It's as though Luke, with his historical account, is just saying, look, 
Let me show you where the power of God is. It's in prayer and praise. So for us, we have a mission to the world. We can't neglect it. We have a ministry to the outcast. We can't overlook them. And we have this thing called prayer and praise, which is a powerful conduit to understanding God and experiencing his grace. Let's pray together. Lord, as I often do at the end of every sermon, I thank you once again for your word. So rich, so diverse. All these books of the Bible written by so many different people in so many different eras from so many different cultures. And there's endless wisdom there, Lord. So I thank you for your word. But I pray that more than studying your word, you will allow us to adopt it and make the good news our mission and to be active in sending people to share the good news. I pray you will never, ever, ever let us forget the disenfranchised members of our society, but with the very heart of Jesus, reach out to them and include them and give them the good news. And I pray, Lord, you will make us people of prayer and praise so that the conduit of our heart and mind will be clear so that we can hear, understand, and follow. In the name of Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen.